I really had to learn to be vulnerable on one side and open on, on one hand, but on the other hand, become more and more confident and really fighting for your, yeah, for the right to continue trying. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy Abbott, designer and former creative evangelist at Google. You're listening to the Learning Economy Podcast, a podcast about not what people know, but their capacity to learn through practical experience, self-taught skills, passion, and the courage to question the status quo. For today's episode, I sit down with Sabina Georg, Managing Director at Miami Ad School Europe, as well as a 14-year veteran of Google and former colleague of mine. We talk about how her path from studying at one of Germany's most well-known art schools led her to working at one of the world's most valuable companies, which later led her to where she is today. This was recorded in December of 2019, before COVID-19 was but an idea based on a Steven Soderbergh film. I'm sitting here with Sabina. She's my friend and ex-colleague from Google. We both left. She left after I, and she started before I did. And... We're going to talk a little bit about creativity and her path to where she is now as the managing director for Miami Ad School Europe. Good morning, Sabina. <laughs> Guten Morgen. Let's start in the very beginning. I know you grew up in a small town near Hannover. Richtig, in VW-Land, where northern Germany is the most boring. And really, it's it's ugly. It's an ugly town. <laughs> it's an ugly town. An ugly town I always wanted to leave. When I been to Hamburg for the first time, it was clear that Hamburg should be my Wahlheimat. This nice word made up by Goethe, I think. Wahlheimat. Translated to English means your elected home. So it happened. And I came to Hamburg to study at HFBK, Hochschule für Bildende Künste, around the corner here at Kunst und Medien Campus. And I started out studying, I become a teacher for fine arts because I had no, not the courage to study fine arts only. So becoming an artist was something like, oh, oh my God, from a small town in an ugly part of Germany. I had not the courage to do what I always wanted to do, to become an artist. So I started out to become a teacher, and then I realized, oh my God, I've been to school, I am at university, and I will be back to school to become a teacher, so I will spend my life teaching and I realized at the age of 20, no, I don't want to do that. I will not be forever in school. So I applied with a new portfolio at HFPK. And then I studied fine arts, just the free fine arts without teaching and pragmatism, another topic. And I did that for, for a while, <laughs> for some years. And I have a diploma in fine art. And that brings me nowhere I thought at the time but I couldn't care less so before you got to the uh, before you got to Havbeka you were studying at a different university or you were studying at Havbeka to teach art yeah what you do is you studied at Havbeka the 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 arts part and then you had to attend the University of Hamburg to do the rest like the second topic which was French literature and uh, French literature and language, because it's höheres Lehramt. At the HFBK, you could study to be a teacher. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, you had to enroll at the university to do the didactic and all the right. 
theory around how to teach. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the topic itself, which was French literature and language, which was by accident, because I wanted to enroll for German literature and language, but I couldn't do that because of the numerous clauses. My abitur wasn't good enough to do German literature and language. So I picked French literature and language, and that was a mistake anyway. So yeah. So then you decided, okay, this isn't going to work out. I want to study just straight up fine art. Yeah. And because so the Hafbeka is pretty well known in the art world, who were some of your professors that you studied under? So I, I knew them all, like Franz Erhard Walter. I went to his class, but um, I couldn't relate to his oeuvre and he couldn't relate to mine. So I ended up being in Klaus Böhmler's class. And Klaus Böhmler is a bit... Uh, a version of Sigma Polka. Sigma Polka, an influential German artist whose inventive paintings and photographs employ non traditional materials, such as meteorite dust or detergent. Born on the 13th of February, 1941 in Ols, Poland in the midst of World War II, he and his family were expelled to communist East Germany after the war. Growing up in the German Democratic Republic left a lasting impact on the artist specifically the sensorial overload of consumer culture he felt after moving to West Germany in 1953. In, in the sense that he's always, he was, I think he's, he's dead. He, d he died, I think, a few years ago. A very witty, always experimental guy, very open towards what we now call new media. And he encouraged me to be ironic, witty, trying out new things. So yeah, it was mainly Klaus Böhmler who... For me, and Gustav Kluge, not to forget and Gustav Kluge. Born in 1947, Gustav Kluge is an artist interested in the interactions between the fundamental conditions of human existence and prevailing social relations. Disregarding trends and movements in art, for 40 years he has been working on his body of work, which can be described as heavy, gloomy, contemplative, and uncompromising in its manner of expression. Is he also, is he deceased or is he still alive? No, he, he's still alive. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's still, Gustav, he's still alive. Maybe, yeah, Klaus Böhmler and, and, and Gustav Kluge were the, the most influential. Gustav, a painter who, who painted, or he still does, quite dark, sinister, very German, very heavy paintings. So that there was Gustav on, on one hand with his very German, deep kind of paintings, and then Klaus with his more light-hearted kind of kind of art. Let's go back a little bit. What triggered you to first study art and then later study fine art? At some point you were in this small town and what made you think I want to pursue living within the art world? Mm. So, so basically I had no clue what to do professionally. So I had no plan or outline for my future existence. Just like like my friend who was quite the contrary, who always wanted to become a dentist, who always wanted to own a Porsche. <laughs> so the future was clear and bright, and my future was not clear at all. And only bright if it comes to I was keen on reading books. So I had a knack or passion for, for literature and a passion for, for art. So I was always I was always creative, sounds so grandiose, but no, I was always scribbling, writing, painting, drawing, but I didn't plan it out like, oh, I want to become an artist. Or no, I was just like an amateur, 
just dabbling in arts. But when I been to Hamburg for the first time, I knew this is the location I want to be at. And then I went with my best friend, who's still my best friend, Heide. <laughs> I went to HFK just to check it out. Like, here's Hochschule für Bündne Künste. Oh, let's check it out. And when I came there, it felt like my temple. So really, oh, this is the place, like my church. Let me take you back again. So since you grew up pretty active in the arts, drawing and painting and stuff, what did your parents do? Did they influence you in the way you've developed or was their role in your development? So, so I come from what we call Kleinbürgerlich. Kleinbürgerlich, meaning lower middle class. How to translate. So my parents don't have a higher education, not at all. Bo both are smart people, but if you look at their CVs, like the formal qualification is Hauptschule, so really lower class background. And they never really supported me. Sounds like, oh, they never really supported me. No, I don't mean it in a bad sense, but they, they said, yeah, if you want to do your A-levels, uh, go for it. We can't help you. Ah, you're interested in arts. Oh, that's Brotlose Kunst. Brotlose Kunst means art that make no income. So that will not earn you anything. But uh, if you want to do it, uh, we can't help it. So passive-aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, nah, to, to be honest, there was no, um, there was no role model, not from my my mother's side, not from my father's side. So I guess it's just me being. You just found your passion for for that, and then when you yeah. visited the Hav Bekan, then mm -hmm. you thought, okay, this is where I want to be, mm -hmm. and then you started studying. Is it is it hard to get into a school like that, or was it hard at the time? Yeah, it was a bit easier when you want to become an arts teacher. So Kunstpädagogik is a bit easier. You apply and they, they are choosy and picky, but not as choosy and picky as for the fine arts only. I think they, they have an intake of at most 20 with 500 uh, applicants. So that's the, that's the rational. I wasn't fully aware at the time how elite this is. I just went for it. And was successful. At some point, you decided you want to switch from art education to fine arts. Mm -hmm. Who were your influences as far as artistically? Who were you looking at, your inspirations? It was always a collection of many because I was open towards many influences, like from Renoir, old stuff, even older stuff, Dura, even older stuff, to modern art, like pop art. Of course, I've looked at Warhol and found interesting his methods and the people he met and the way he, he did it. Sigmar Polke is one of my, the, the latest, greatest, like my Bob Dylan for, for the arts. He's a total hero, but I, I wouldn't have dared to say, oh, Sigmar Polke, I'm doing stuff like Sigmar Polke. No, only in my, my, my Google interview, I said, ah, Sigmar Polke is my main influence. And the guy, who? Uh, Sigmar Polke, one of Germany's most popular artists, never heard. And then and Cindy Sherman, mm, Inszenierte Fotografie, was very influential at the time. And I copied her work for, for a while. While you were studying? Mm -hmm. So Klaus Böhmler said, yeah, then go ahead and copy her, but do your own thing. Transform it into your own thing. Mm. Who else? No, I think that's that's basically it. Okay. So you were studying there, and 
It was a formal, I guess, as formal as education as anything could be as a fine art. What kind of things did you learn there when you reflect back? What do you still carry with you? What I learned and what was really hard at the time because I was way shyer than I am now. So I was, was a super pathologically shy kid. I didn't dare speaking out in front of more than one person. So it was really, that was a journey. And in, in art school, you had to present yourself. So what we now call self-branding was a thing. And I realized that early on that you had to sell yourself, not only what you do with your portfolio, but also the way you are. And was that in critiques or how would you do critiques that? Critiques and also to be allowed into a class, you had to do your pitch. I was never like the coolest girl around, but my portfolio, the stuff I made was so original, so in between categories, because all the influences I mentioned are reflected in my work. It was messy, <laughs> you could say, or rich in references and yeah, in between categories and labels. So once I presented to Gotthard Graupner, the, the painter, in his class, and he was like oh, the godfather of the painting masterclasses at, at HFPK. And he was like, hmm, okay, that's not for my class, but it's, oh, it's interesting. So always come back for a critique if, if you want. And that was like, oh, uh, a compliment. So the setup was you would go there with your portfolio, your paintings, and it would just be yeah. a one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be in front of a group. Mm. They were in front of the group. So you would have to go and, wow, that's very, mm -hmm. I mean, that leaves you, if you don't have the self-confidence, you're very vulnerable, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's you're at your most vulnerable uh, because uh, what I'm doing right now is, is so, with a distance from me compared to then, I was way more vulnerable because I was younger and shy and like, oh, coming from a small town, I'm not so, so cool. Uh -huh. So yeah, super vulnerable. And I couldn't help but you had to open yourself and go for it. Yeah, uh, and, and art, art is like that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it really exposes some of your inner personality or emotions. Yeah. And so you were there and you presented and the, this painter said, interesting, but not for me. Not, so for, you not for me, but he said, hmm, interesting. And he meant it in, in a German way, so that was, that was good. And also I, c I can remember I once threw away uh, lots of my stuff. That was quite early in, in my studies at, at HFPK. And my professor, Gustav Kluge, he had saved it from the trash bin. So I threw it away like in rage. I was so frustrated with not being good enough, not being interesting enough. And the next day I came and Gustav said, can we talk? I said, yeah. And he opened his drawer and showed me that he had saved all my work had put it out of the trash bin. Yeah, Sabina, don't do that. Don't throw it away because it's it's good. It's good. You have to believe in yourself. So where did this, this self-doubt come? Where did this feeling of, I don't think I'm good enough come? Where did that come from? I was a shy kid. My my parents were, were yeah, not, they, they loved me, but they were not supportive in, in a sense that the way you are with your kids, it's the total contrary. Like, really encouraging and ah go for it and never give your give your boys the feeling that they are not good enough so my parents were always like, ah when you want to do your a levels your o levels you have to do it for yourself and when you're not good enough you're not good enough so so encouragement didn't come from them and from myself it couldn't come because i was too shy and too insecure so what's left then 
And at the Hafbika, because at that point you were painting, you were mm -hmm. studying there. So at Hafbika, I was not amongst the coolest gang, but I wasn't a loser either. So in in between, mm, and I think what what helped me immensely were situations like the one I described with with Gustav, who saved my work from the trash bin, saying, "Sabina, I believe in yourself because you're you're good." And I admired him. He was like my my idol at, at the time. So that gave me a big push. Before that, I was always, oh, they were like the Im imposter syndrome. Oh, they will f find out that I'm here because of, mm, I don't know, it's a lucky lucky accident that happened to me. So I really had to learn to be vulnerable on one side and open on, on one side and on one hand, but on the other hand, become more and more confident and really fighting for your... Yeah, for the right to continue trying. Those are some of the learnings that you took away from yeah. your studies. Yeah. So at some point you transitioned to Boomler and you started working more with mixed media or mm -hmm. were you doing paintings? Or mixed media. Uh, Super 8 films and I was doing photography and then scratching into the film, manipulating the negatives and then doing big poster formats and then painting on them. So like what you do nowadays with Photoshop Advanced with different layers, I did by hand manually. Right, analog. So at some point you finished. How many years did you study under Boomler? Uh, under Boomler? Uh, well, count, count, four or five. Four or five years. Really? Mm -hmm. And then at some point you got your diploma, mm -hmm. correct? So you have your diploma in hand as a fine artist from a very highly regarded school. Yeah, but that's not reflected in society. Because in Germany, when you have either at a party or wherever it is, when you say, yeah, I studied fine arts at Hafbikar, yeah, fine arts, so you're a Brotlose Künstler, what are you going to do with it? It brings you nowhere. So you don't get the recognition, you don't get the appreciation. It's always this niche thing, this weird, are you a freak? <laughs> you decided not to develop that artistic side? Oh, uh, well, I did. I, I tried. So I had a few exhibitions, smaller group exhibitions, and then my god uncle, I think it's called my patent uncle, he worked as a manager in the automotive industry and he ran a marketing department at the time. In Hamburg or No in, in Bavaria. Okay. And he said, you, you know what, you're you're creative and I need someone who helps me in doing a marketing campaign for one of the first airbags in, in Germany. So he sort of co invented the airbag. I helped him to create a marketing campaign, like an, an ad campaign. So uh, you, you traveled to Bavaria or did mm -hmm. you do it? Okay, yeah. right. And he was buying my stuff to produce an ad campaign with my motifs. So at some point you moved from fine art to more into the, I guess back then they called it commercial artist, right? To by, design. By, by, by accident. So I wasn't fully aware of what it is. I, I wouldn't have called it marketing at the time. Like, oh, I'm supporting... Uh, my god uncle in, in doing a marketing or ad campaign, I was just, okay, he needs my help. I give him an idea. So I, I had no professional framework for it, but thinking about it, I think it's the first step into commercial art. And I did it for a while. So he then booked me again and again. For twice per year, I supported him in giving him ideas and motives for his ad campaigns. So you were doing that and on the side, was that enough to support your life or were you doing other things? I was doing odd jobs. So I worked at the postal office, not as a briefträger. Briefträger is a mailman or postman or woman. Uh, in, in night shifts at the big postal briefzentrum. 
Where you, where you sort out letters. The letters. And, and, oh, yeah. okay. Wow. So you were doing side job, mm -hmm. and the idea was still to be pursue art. Yeah, well, and and I was happy about my life at, at the time, although I didn't have much money, but it was okay. It sustained my lifestyle, and I sort of set my alarm in the middle of the night to go into the really cool clubs. So I was enjoying this free life as an artist with some side jobs and some, some gigs in, in arts. And I wasn't giving it a second thought because I was happy and I fulfilled my passion. But then I had a moment, <laughs> I, I will never forget the, the moment where I realized, oh my God, this is my life. I'm doing odd jobs. I have some, some accidental <laughs> art exhibitions, but that doesn't give me money nor fame. So if I will not marry a rich man, which hasn't happened until today, it will probably not happen at all, I will lead a life, there's a German word for it, like precariat, so where you have no money, you're always in danger of being really poor and well, maybe become obdachlos. Obdachlos is translated as homeless. I don't know. So I had a bit of a panic for five minutes like oh, oh my god uh, maybe I end in a bad way but then I forgot about it and continued doing what I did and forgot about it just for reference mm -hmm. were, were you in the mid-20s or late early 30s what? late 20s okay so this mm -hmm. is kind of like a, a midlife crisis but a kind of mm -hmm. not really midlife so an mm -hmm. early midlife crisis okay yeah. then I met at a party, someone who worked in what was called New Media Agency, that was late 90s. Okay, yeah. Late 90s. And he said, yeah, why don't you come by this agency I work for? They do new media. Hey, what, what are you doing? Yeah, new media, we do things for the internet. And maybe because you're creative, you can support us in, in creating banner ads. A banner ad is a form of advertising on the World Wide Web first made popular on the 27th of October, 1994, in which Wired magazine's digital affiliate Hotwired ran what later became known as the web's first banner ad for AT&T. Or teaser, copy text, and hey, what, teaser, banner ads? I had no laptop, I had no, I had no clue. Uh, but I went there just out of curiosity. Oh, yeah, I will check it out. Open mindset. And then the people were nice and the culture was nice and really messy and and wild. and <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the name of the agency? Uh, yeah, it was EMP, Interactive Marketing Partner. They later were bought by Focus Interactive. Okay, or yeah. They became big and then they... So you were there in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm, in the beginning. And they had a client who needed an audio text quiz thing, like Trivial Pursuit, where you had to come up with uh, funny questions and funny answers, like, what is the Pope not blind, Catholic, or gay? Okay, right. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. And you did that uh, so audio te text quiz. It, it was later on, it was not allowed anymore. <laughs> a telephone quiz. Like, oh, right. Uh, dial the four when you... I want to continue with that pop quiz. And if you answer the questions right, you win nothing. You win uh, a trip to Hanover or something. Wherever. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Wherever. So it wasn't a very serious business thing, but I loved setting up the question and the answers. And I had a, to write a script, an audio text script in Excel. 
I will never forget <laughs> that because the friend of mine, he had rented out his laptop to me, like, do it on my laptop. And then you open Excel, that's a program, and then you type in that script and here's the template. And, hey, what? I really had no clue and it took me uh, eight, nine hours to do that. And in the end, you, you've been asked by the machine, like, do you want to save the changes you made? And I thought, no, I didn't make much changes. I said no, and then it was gone. So... Yeah, did you again? I had to did it, do, do, do it again. Yeah, yes. yeah. But then that's where you learned as well, right? Yeah, I learned it the hard way. Learned so by do, learning by doing. Habit. Yeah. Yes. And always the hard way. Like, I never had an easy start. Even my birth was complicated and took long. And it was complicated. Okay. And that's a pattern. That's a pattern. <laughs> okay. But I think also a pattern is the learning through life experience. I think that's something that a lot of people... You know, for better or worse, they kind of miss out on it with all the media that's out there today. So you, so now you're at EMP or IMP. How long were you there for? Uh, not so long because the, the bosses, they had an argument, so they separated. And one of the bosses, one of the managing directors, set up his own agency, Middle Media. That was 1998. And he asked me, do you want to join this agency? It's... Uh, small but we do below the line and above the line so we do everything agency with a focus on digital you want to join but you can only join full-time because before that i did part-time gigs and i was still free and i considered myself fine artist uh, with a now more lucrative job to the side still free not this nine to five or nine to nine mentality but then that needed to change because he said no you you can only work for me, like with a contract and from nine to nine, uh, think about it. And I thought about it and was a bit panicking, like, oh no, I don't want to lead that kind of life that brings me to the office in the morning and back home in the evening and then looking forward to weekends, oh no. Yeah, look where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to not do that? take that offer you decided to say okay i think i'll st stay freelance or what were your I, w I was thinking back and forth but then i decided to do it because i saw it as a chance to earn more money and to lead a more regular life so i did it at some mm. point you left and you were at a company called freenet freenet and mm. can you explain what freenet is mm. freenet is like aol so an internet service provider and at the time when i started there in, in 2000 they were still in the beginning, so it wasn't much more than a phone number you could call to get internet service. And then they started to set up a content team and content partnerships. And yeah, it was early stages of an internet service provider. How did you get there? I applied for AOL, Freenet, and no, I think that that's it, AOL and Freenet, here in Hamburg. And AOL wanted to have me, but they... They called me when I had just signed the contract with Freenet. So Freenet was faster in responding, but I would have gone to AOL if they had right. been. And how long were you at Freenet for? Five years. What were you doing there? Doing, I was a team lead in, in the end, being responsible for a few content channels. So it's like a redaction, like build Zeitung for the poor. And <laughs> at this point, you still doing art on the side or are you not? Yeah. Still okay. doing art on the side, and, and I always said, ah, I will always do that. I will always find time to do something in Photoshop or taking pictures with an analog Leica camera. So that was always happening to, to the side. Yeah, but 
<laughs> okay. When Google came. Google came after five years at Freenet. Mm-hmm. And how did how did Google come? How did that happen? That's funny because everything is related. So my first client when I worked for Millimedia, this small agency with contract and everything in 98, my first client was Alta Vista, the search engine. Alta Vista was a web search engine established in 1995 and became one of the most used early search engines. And Matthias Schmidt, the CEO, said uh, one day, yeah, you know what, Alta Vista is still popular, but there's this new search engine from Mountain View. It's called Google. Google was founded in September 1998 by Larry Page and Sergey Brin while they were PhD students at Stanford University in California. It's two guys, they're doing their PhD in computer science, and it's totally new with page rank and how many pages refer to your own website. So that's the new thing. That's the hot shit. And this was in 2000? That was in 99, I think. 99, okay, right. And then working for Freenet, all of a sudden everyone just used Google as a search engine. So I knew Google as a search engine. As a user. What it is, as a a user. And in my team at, at Freenet was a girl or woman, Inga, who left Freenet to join Google as creative maximizer. I said, Inga, what are you doing for Google as a creative maximizer? Yeah, not so interesting. I set up AdWords campaigns for clients. That's what I do. It's it's really boring. But Google is fun, actually. It's, it's a small team in Hamburg. Yeah, okay. I didn't give it a second thought. It didn't sound interesting. And then one day on a weekend in Berlin, I read an article in Süddeutsche Zeitung about Google's culture and about a female engineer called Monika something, Monika Herbolzheim, I don't know. She has left Google many years ago, but I totally liked what was described as uh, this is the, the culture Google is providing. And at Freenet, there was no culture. I mean, there's always a culture, but the culture at Freenet was very rustique, not really like taking care for the employees, not this free and fun culture as it sounded with Google. And Inger, my, my former team team member working for Google, uh, and I were good friends. So I gave her a call like, oh, I read this article about Google and the culture sounds so interesting. She said, yeah, the culture is, is okay. It's, it's Google Hamburg. It's a bit more brittle maybe, but yeah, you can you can check it out. Or maybe we have a job opening one day. But do you really want to leave Freenet? Said, yeah, I want to leave Freenet. I need a different culture. How long had you been at Freenet? Five years. So mm-hmm. it's like 2005, right? 2005. And I felt like a plant who needs a change of location and a change of culture. So I applied, or better put, Inga referred me because Google has this referral system. And then <laughs> I made this interesting application because I thought, oh, when I give Google what they wanted at the time, there's strong academic background. You need to have a diploma or a degree, a degree, not a diploma, a degree, ideally, with a named university so in the UK, it's Oxford or Cambridge. In the US, it's Yale or Stanford. In Germany, it's not half PK Hamburg. And not this many years of <laughs> doing fine arts. So I thought, okay, I need to do it differently. So I set up an application that was really creative. And I downloaded the Google search results page and I manipulated it with Dreamweaver, the, the tool. Dreamweaver was one of the first WYSIWYG HTML editors created by Macromedia in 1997 and developed by them until Macromedia was acquired by Adobe Systems in 2005. 
For example, one of the Google ads I used was saying, Sabine Georg wants some changed www.sabinegeorge.de leading to my small website. So I built, built a website. I built a website. Yeah. Yeah. And Google's 10 principles of innovation, I, I guess, or the 10 principles of what is Google, Google about, I took to related to my own value system. Mm. Or the job requirements for Creative Maximizer, like good presentation skills, I took and I put them on the left-hand side of the... I built a, a table, and on the right-hand side was good presentation skills because when I went to school, I had the main role in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. So there was not one single number in my application because I thought I had spent eight years at Halpikar. That's weird. Google will never invite me for interviews when they just read my classic tabellarische Lebenslauf. So I need to Stand compensate out. that with right. creativity. Yeah. And it worked. Ina referred you and then they you were applying as a creative maximist? Creative maximizer. Maximizer, that, right. That was the job role at, at the time. It was changed into account strategist okay. after two months or so. Google has a notoriously challenging mm -hmm. application process. Mm -hmm. So you got referred and then you got called in for an interview nine interviews nine interviews so-called wow. on-site on interviews so i had to find an excuse at, at freenet go to, there and yeah. spend the day and, and my hope was when they invite me i can convince them in this on-site one-on-one situations but the formal requirements like with the tabellarische lebenslauf and my not academic background will not bring me there so And you showed and this demonstration, this website you built all nine times, or was it just the initial interview? I showed it, I think, to all of them or to most of them. And it was kind of a legendary thing because they didn't get that kind of applications normally. So it was like, oh, and Sabina, you send us something really original. and yeah. Which is ironic, But right? Because I mm -hmm. believe Google, if you think about it, it started by engineers and engineers build things. But I think in the office that you were applying to, which is a sales office, they probably are not used to people making things and no, building things. No, And it was a bit like a poker game because when my application was still like in... In the <laughs> process? In the process. I got an email like, oh, could you please send us also the conventional resume? And I thought, oh shit, I won't do that. So I ignored that email, which is not typical for me at all. I'm very responsive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I yeah. answer all emails. But I said, no, I, I need to do it like in a poker game. I, Just gonna I put it all on, right. on black and black needs to win. Because with a, with a conventional tabellarische Lebenslauf, I don't think I'd made, I'd made it <laughs> to how get an invite. How long were you at Google altogether? Almost 14 years. 14, For, 14 years. 14 years. I think a lot has changed from since you started there to where you are now. Because I think now, if you were to apply that way, it's almost impossible because they have a, a website and then they have you fill things in, if I cor remember correctly, unless you have a referral. What would you say for people that are interested in Google, what do you think is the biggest learning you took in your 14 years there? Because mm -hmm. you, you've had several roles there. I had several roles and I've seen the change or the journey from when I started out in Hamburg, there were 40 people, 40, 50 people. And how many altogether at Google, do you think? In sales, we were 6,000 because I remember the first international sales conference we had in January 2006 in the Moscone Center in San Francisco. 
uh, with 6,000 people and Larry and Sergey presenting, like a standing ovation, and they were totally irritated by seeing so many people. Like, oh, what have we done? And nowadays it's 70,000 sales guys. Versus how many product slash engineering people? Was it like mm. half and half or no? No, Google is two-third engineers and only one-third sales. But it, it feels totally different in Hamburg because it's 99% sales right? and almost no yeah. engineers. And you spent almost 14 years in Hamburg, right? With short stints in Other, London. Oh, that's Vienna. true. And in Austria, right? Mm -hmm. Vienna. In, yeah, Vienna. So what is your biggest takeaway from your 14 years at Google? The only constant is change. Change is good, not always. There are things that have changed that are not so good, I think, for the company. I think... Google needs to make sure that there's spirit of being bold, courageous, being a bit crazy, being edgy, that this spirit doesn't die down completely. And there's super capitalist ambition is not the dominant thing. Sounds naive. Yeah, Google, of course it's capitalist. I'm not anti-capitalist but i think there's grow more grow more grow more mantra the way to go yeah so you're at google 14 years what was the trigger to make you leave many triggers i think in total that's what i have written in my exit note is been there done that loved it leave it because it's a bit like a relationship that had run its course you keep up the marriage for <laughs> another 10 years or so but it would be not exciting anymore. There are people that stay even though they don't have that same outlook that you have. I might not be learning anything, but the money's great, so I'm just going to stay. You're very atypical of that. Mm. You decided, okay, I've done everything. I can't learn anymore, so I'm going to leave, which is very, it's almost antithesis to what you did when you started studying at the Hafbeka, right? At that point, you were less confident but you still did it. Maybe mm. there's a thread through, mm. even though you feel that you were not confident, you go ahead and you're more consequential in your actions. Mm. So speak to that. So you decided to quit because you stopped learning and then then yeah. what were your prospects? I was very thorough in, in exploring my motives. Like what keeps me? And I'm still free. I'm not married. I don't need to pay bills. I cannot pay. So I'm really, I'm free. I can roam wherever I, I want to roam. I can leave when I want to leave. So nothing is keeping me, basically. And I explored what keeps me. There's the people, yes, but the people will not die. So my friends are my friends. And whether they work for Google or not for Google anymore, like you, we can still meet and yeah, be friends. The culture, mm, no, I will not miss that. I have it with me, like things I learned, how to be productive, how to mm, maintain a fast-paced, open culture. I take that with me. Mm. And I was fully aware that my last role at Google, creative agency manager, is ideal for me. So it's it's like a fish in a water tank and I couldn't find a better role at Google, like industry manager for a branding client or something like that. Mm -mm. No way. So there's been there, done that, loved it, leave it, uh, rang true. And I felt that my energy level was lowering, 
not by the minute, but by the day, because no excitement anymore. So at some point you said, okay, maybe it's time for me to leave. And in the end you left. So what did you do between leaving Google and becoming the managing director at the Miami Ad School Europe? Yeah, that was happening very fast because I left Google on Valentine's Day this year. It, it feels like light years ago, but it's still February 2019. And I had, I think, three weeks <laughs> where I didn't do much. And the plan was, or the plan as it happened, like you start out in the role as admission director to get familiar with how the school works. In at Miami Ad School. At Miami Ad School, because Nicholas, who had been the managing director for 16 years, has said to me, you know what, uh, we are sort of running in parallels. He, he was here for 16 years doing everything at Miami Ad School, like running that school in every uh, possible way, where I was for 14 years at Google doing all I wanted to do. And we were both like, okay, th this is it, so <laughs> let's give each other a break. And it totally makes sense that I'm now the new Nicholas. <laughs> and I learned like, an apprenticeship in my admission role to get familiar with the backbone of the school, like admissions, how the office works, all the processes in daily life. And then after three months, I took over from Nicholas doing the managing director duties. Did Nicholas offer you the job? Or how did that come around? He offered me. That. He was ready to move to try something yeah, else. Right? And he, I, I guess, I hope, or I know that he was confident that I could be his successor. Successor is the word? Like, no. That's correct, yeah. Mm, yeah. Because he has seen me coming here as a teacher and for many years and he, he knows me quite well and he knows that my passion is in what the school offers, like creativity and exploring the field of creativity and encouraging creative talent. So that's right. just my thing to work with the young creatives. So what's ironic is we started at the very beginning where you wanted to study art education and you were studying art education and then you left to be a fine artist that sometime you joined the commercial world but now you're almost back to where you started mm -hmm. in art education mm -hmm. because maybe explain what Miami Ad School is to those that don't know. Mm -hmm. Miami Ad School is when you break it down uh, a place here in Hamburg it's it's a whole building in Berlin it's just a loft apartment a place where young creative talent gathers to learn everything about the aspects of doing ad campaigns, but also aspects about digital marketing. Punkt. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Crazy. In two years. So it's, it's, it's eight, eight quarters, two years, and it's very practical. So they, they learn by doing. Of course, they get some theory and some strategy input, but mainly it's very learning by doing. Learning by doing. Myself. Exactly what you've done basically mm -hmm. your whole, whole life. So just to wrap it up, let me ask you one last question. As this podcast is titled The Learning Economy, what do you think is important for people today when it comes to learning? When you break it down to one simple phrase, be open, be tenacious, be patient. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Sabina. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to thelearningeconomy.net. Please also consider subscribing to the show on iTunes and do us a favor and write us a review while you are there. The show is produced by myself and the introduction music by Andrew Applepie. I'm Jeremy Abbott and you've been listening to The Learning Economy.